the best doctor I ever worked with often would say perfect is the enemy of good. Thank you for joining us on Doorknob Comments, a podcast that we created to discuss all things involving mental health. We take the view that psychiatry is not just about the absence of illness, but rather the positive qualities, presence of health, and strong relationships, and all the wonderful things that make life worth living. I'm Dr. Farah White. And I'm Dr. Grant Brenner. Today, we will start talking about a complex topic of near-universal interest, but much confusion, personality. We will discuss what personality is, how it is measured, and how personality can change over time, both across the lifespan and as the result of psychotherapy and other efforts to change. Thanks so much for being here today. It's just me and Grant. What is your working uh, model of personality? You're a psychiatrist, as, as am I, yeah. And, but so how, how do you think about personality, actually, when you work with someone? How do you think about that? Is that part of your vernacular? Uh, I know as psychiatrists, just for reference, we're not necessarily trained in psychology very much, uh, but we are trained in the psychiatric diagnostic model, which has a section on personality disorders. Would you agree or disagree? I absolutely agree, but I think recently been very interested in, you know, we intended today to, to talk about what types of change in personality are possible. I think a lot of people come into therapy hoping to to make changes, um, whether it's because they are having interpersonal issues, uh, struggling with work or with romantic relationships. And I guess maybe I think it would be helpful if you could talk about some of the personality traits and then in a follow-up uh, conversation, we can discuss what types of traits are more subject to change. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge subject. And I'm, I was joking before, I'm, I'm pretending actually to be antagonistic, which is one of the. Okay. She's the last. Yeah, you don't I'm have pretend, to. You I'm, don't have to pretend that that hard. It, well, you know, some things come naturally to mm-hmm. s- certain folks, but yeah. you know, there's a kind of a way where playfulness is a characteristic of a person. It, maybe it goes along with one of the personality traits that that's commonly discussed is openness to new experience, creativity, mental flexibility, imagination. But play, of course, is a, is a two-way street. And, you know, we all know that if you're teasing someone, it can be quite fun and an expression of infe- affection and um, sort of a game that people play together. But if it's not mutual, it can, it can quickly tip over into something else. I was thinking about my kids where my son likes to tease my daughter and she asks him not to, but sometimes she goes along with it. And I keep trying to make the distinction that by definition, play is with the agreement of all the parties involved. But I've, I've been keenly interested in psychology since a young age. And it's one of the reasons why I went into psychiatry and psychoanalysis, but I almost um, went into psychology in terms of getting a PhD mm-hmm. uh, and have always been interested in the research. But re- recently I was asked to write something like a mini user's guide to personality. So I have immersed myself in it even more. Yeah. So do you want to share with us, is there anything that really stood out to you as something that people should know? It's really kind of a wild, wild west in a way. For psychologists, the big five model is one of the predominant research models. And where did it come from, like come out of? I don't recall who developed it originally, okay. uh, to but be it's honest. Kind of a, that's kind of a standard thing. For, yeah, I, I, should, I should look that up. But it's a fairly standard 
uh, model. It's used in the in the Neo approach, which is like a psych testing model. But the the big five traits are openness to new experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Neuroticism is also emotional instability. So kind of the positive side of neuroticism would be emotional stability. O C E A N. Even though there are these five traits. And then there's also a model called the hexaco, which is the same as the ocean, except the H stands for honesty, humility. But all of those traits have what are called subfacets. And a lot of the research looks at the big traits, the big five or the hexaco, big six. There's also like a big two, which is, you know, a distilled model. There's something called the general factor, which is kind of your overall personality flavor. Mm -hmm. But there's no real consensus agreement people kind of use the one that they find most useful. The O stands for openness to new experience. So what kinds of, I mean, I took this test last night just kind of for fun. What are the kinds of things that you would look at if you want to gauge someone's openness to new experiences? So for openness, and if you look it up, you'll see that they use different labels for the facets. The first one is fantasy. Sometimes yeah. that's referred to as imagination. Aesthetics, which is also referred to as artistic temperament, feelings, actions, ideas, and values. Would you think that people who have a high degree of openness are the more sort of like either creative or entrepreneurial or like how would you sort of characterize? Well, it's one of the traits that you often see in entrepreneurs, but you also see other traits that go together with that, you know, like extroversion. Mm -hmm. typically. And so, you know, you can't really understand these traits or more importantly, the facets without sort of seeing the whole picture. And in addition to the the loading on the other personality traits, it's also what environment are you in? Um, yeah. so, someone who's more open to new experience in general is going to be better at divergent thinking and, and better at tolerating a lot of diversity. Mm -hmm. um, so, someone who's lower on openness to new experience is more likely to want to kind of wrap things up and have a clear answer or, okay. you know, be high on what they call need for closure, though that mm. also may depend on how conscientious the person is. So if you have someone who's very open and very conscientious, that's going to be very different from someone who's very open, but not particularly conscientious. Conscientiousness, for example, has underlying facets that are feeling competent, liking order, having a sense of duty or responsibility, striving for achievement, having a high level of self-discipline, and being very deliberate. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting because sometimes the subfacets are really what determine a behavior. So for example, I was looking at research on what personality facets correlate with infidelity. And mm -hmm. typically, conscientiousness is negatively associated. So more conscientious people are less likely to cheat on their partners. But when they broke it down by facet, they found that it was the sense of duty, really, that was leading to the faithfulness. Right. And also oh. people who are less extroverted are less likely to cheat, but particularly the ones who are lower on excitement seeking, yeah. because there's something about infidelity that stimulates excitement. So I've heard. Um, but, but you can be extroverted without being an excitement seeker because extroversion it consists of warmth, gregariousness, yeah. assertiveness, a need for more activity, excitement seeking, and a preference for positive emotion. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of different ways to be extroverted. Yeah, I 
know that you also have talked a lot or or written a lot about perfectionism. And I wonder... I think I wrote two blogs about it. I would characterize that <laughs> a lot. I've written zero blogs about it. <laughs> but, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a dilettante. I'm making, I'm, I'm making fun of myself because obviously there are psychologists who make, make basically their whole research is about perfectionism. Yeah. Whereas I'm, you know, a generalist. So I, yeah. I get it though. I'm but glad to be able to communicate it. There is a relationship because when you were describing the facets of conscientiousness, I like felt a little bit, I don't know, anxious because it seemed like bordering on, you know, perfectionism. Right, type. right, right. And that's something that I feel like is the other side of the of the coin. Well, like here's the thing. Most of these traits are some of them seem to be kind of overall positive, you know, correlated with performance. Um, mm-hmm. extroversion, conscientiousness, agreeableness. Others, you know, it depends on the context. It's not so bad to be introverted if you're a computer programmer, and it's not bad to be introverted at all. It, it doesn't mean that you're antisocial or anything like that. Our society, you know, tends to highlight extroversion. So there's mm-hmm. also cultural factors. People talk about whether a personality is measured too much from a Western point of view. They call it weird. I don't remember what it stands for, but it's like Western educated, industrial, something, something. And so there's a question as to whether these personality constructs apply to, you know, Eastern countries, though a lot of it has been cross-culturally validated. In terms of perfectionism, though, so I've seen kind of two big models around perfectionism. And sometimes perfectionism, often it causes problems for people, but sometimes perfectionism actually drives high performance. And it, it does overlap with conscientiousness. So with perfectionism, they talk about self-directed perfectionism, like your expectations for yourself, other directed perfectionism, like thinking others need to be perfect, and then socially prescribed perfectionism, which is sort of like how you were raised and what your culture says. So if you were raised, you know, by a kind of a, in a very perfectionistic demanding family, you might internalize a feeling that like it's never good enough and you always need to try harder. The other cuts I've seen on perfectionism are there's a distinction made between what are called perfectionistic strivings, like your aspirations, and perfectionistic concern or preoccupation. People who have high perfectionistic striving actually tend to do very well. Professional athletes do well when they're very perfectionistic but and conscientious, but of course they lose out on many other areas of life. But on the other hand, perfectionistic concern can overlap with neuroticism and it's like too worried and it mm-hmm. bothers other people and you kind of spin yeah. your wheels. Or you know, what they say is perfect is the enemy of good, right? Perfect is the enemy of good. Yeah. The best, the best doctor I ever worked with often would say perfect is the enemy of good. Yeah. And when I was in med school and I would spend a really long time like writing a progress note, you know, the only thing that I had to do that day on rotation was to write a progress note. So I really wanted to make it perfect. Now I've well, like that one on progress that. note. Yeah. <laughs> so I really, you know, gave it my all. And then the resident would look at the note and he'd be like, oh, this is just, this note is so complete. It's so wonderful. I'm just, I'm so sad that the other services aren't going to get to read it. Why weren't they going to get to read it? Because it was three o'clock by the time everyone had already rounded by the time it got into the chart. Oh, I see. I see. Like you missed the deadline because you were trying to, you were having trouble wrapping up the details of the project. Exactly. And so, you know, I was getting bogged down and spending too much time and then it didn't really matter how great my note was because no one saw it. 
Right. One, one of the many two blogs that I've written about perfectionism, I also describe what psychiatry calls, you know, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which is like being rigid and too rule bound and needing to get all the details and having trouble prioritizing and, you know, making choices, um, being indecisive. It, it, can, it can be quite maddening for other people as well. Um, and that's described as a personality disorder. When people say, oh, I'm, I'm OCD about it, a lot of times they, they, I think they really mean I'm OCPD. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you discuss personality diagnosis with patients? Is that something you integrate into clinical practice? I don't. Sometimes it'll come up just in the form of, well, why am I like this? And then sort of, we can talk about these things organically um, and sort of link it to whatever might've happened in their childhood or any formative experiences. But I am not really, I don't get that hung up on on diagnosis unless I think it's going to be helpful in some way. Why do you say you don't get hung up on it? There's no reason that my patients need to have an accurate diagnosis. I think for billing purposes, and if you work with insurance companies, certainly you need to sort of give a rationale and a diagnosis and then uh, an appropriate treatment plan. But that's that's not something that I really think about. And I look at what is going to be the most helpful. And I have found that sometimes it's helpful for people to understand, well, this is a part of your personality. Maybe it's disordered. Maybe it's not. But it's sort of not your fault that you're this way. So certainly I look at it from that perspective. But usually, you know, in in a very, I sort of let them lead the way on that. Yeah. Well, if it's organic, it's good, right? Um, I think so. Like lead is naturally occurring in organic. <laughs> I was going to go down some Ayurvedic path about mercury, which is mm-hmm. also naturally occurring and was mm-hmm. considered at one time to be a remedy. But it turns out that they're both neurotoxins, right? So Yeah, but mercury has its use, uses in, in hat manufacturing, making felt, hence the term mad as a hatter. You know, I agree in the sense that there can be a negative reaction people have to being pathologized. And the feeling that one's personality is diseased is not necessarily a user-friendly way to talk about personality for a lot of people, particularly Mm -hmm. if they are higher in neurotic traits. So they have a tendency to cope with worry or feel negative affect or blame themselves. Mm -hmm. The facets of neuroticism, for example, which is associated with anxiety and depression clinically, are anxiety, angry hostility, depression, mm-hmm. self-consciousness, and mm-hmm. in the sense of being sort of painfully self-conscious, not yeah. higher self-awareness, though it also can be higher self-awareness, which can be quite useful if properly leveraged, impulsiveness and vulnerability. And mm-hmm. impulsiveness is is a is a bad one in the sense that it undermines self-control, which yeah. as a as a trait, self-control like discipline in mm-hmm. conscientiousness is generally useful. Yeah. When I talk about personality, I usually just talk about traits, uh, unless I think that there's good reason to identify something as problematic versus Mm -hmm. like depends what you do with it. Yeah. I want to go back to the to sort of the the facets of the E and the A. Yeah, sure. We we talked about extroversion, but agreeableness uh, breaks down into trust, straightforwardness, altruism, compliance, modesty and tender-mindedness. Tender-mindedness. I've never 
<laughs> term, but I like it. Yeah, it's like a sensitivity. I think some of the traits of agreeableness seem to overlap with the honesty, humility mm -hmm. dimension on, on the six-factor model, the hexaco model. Mm -hmm. And it's probably worth mentioning those as well, because they're important because, for example, they predict whether or not someone is going to be deviant in the workplace pretty well. The hexaco, the honesty, humility dimension include a tendency towards sincerity, a sense of fairness, avoidance of greed, and modesty. And in particular, people who have a sense of fairness are less likely to be deviant in the workplace, and I presume mm -hmm. elsewhere. So they're less likely to make offensive remarks to coworkers. They're less likely to steal from work, they're, and they're less likely to be late to work. But are people, are they held back in any way? Like the, the idea of compliance makes me think of like a sort of middle management type of situation like is it is it always good to be agreeable or absolutely not <laughs> well it depends on the context um, in extreme, I think you would you would see that overlaps with like something like what we call dependent personality disorder. Mm -hmm. Someone who is so agreeable, and there may be other factors like developmental yeah. trauma uh, yeah. or high levels of neuroticism. Someone who's so agreeable that they can't assert themselves, or they think that any kind of interest in their own well-being is pathologically narcissistic rather than mm -hmm. a healthy sense of self. I, I think that's something that women and young women, especially in the in the workforce have to deal with yeah. because Gender. there's yeah we're sort of raised to be these like and race good little girls and anytime you know so so sometimes speaking up and there's been a lot written about it there's a really good book that i like to recommend called the likability trap written by alicia menendez i think she's a, a journalist who was just interested in this topic so i think the agreeableness might be something that warrants like further examination if people find that they're just like always okay with everything and they don't feel comfortable standing up with themselves. Some people are just really easy by nature and really flexible about certain things. Like I know there are certain things that really don't bother me and things that bother me a lot. Yeah, it's interesting because you know, where do you draw the line between sort of a trait and a pathological trait? So is is, is excessive agreeableness dependency? And mm -hmm. dependency is pretty good. You know, knowing how to depend on other people is a survival trait. It helps the group. But in extreme, maybe it becomes one of the uh, pathological personality traits, which are mm -hmm. compulsivity, detachment, negative affect, psychoticism, disinhibition, antagonism, and, and submissiveness. So at what point does being agreeable turn into unhealthy dependency or submissiveness, which would make someone prone to becoming victimized? And then how do you discuss that with someone? Because you know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down and it's hard to, it's hard to swallow. That's yeah. tough feedback to get. Even for someone who's saying, I really want to change. I know I have problems. Tell me what they are and help me out. Right. Even when they're ready, willing, and, and maybe able. Uh, but I do think that that is part of why the therapeutic relationship is so important because people who want to change and come to therapy, you know, really to try to change certain things about themselves, it's important to look at that and to get feedback from someone. I mean, most people, it's good to like your therapist and to feel that he or she likes you too, but that's not always the case. And there are definitely times where um, you have to give feedback that's uncomfortable, but it would be even more uncomfortable if this were like a social situation. 
you know, you can be pissed off at your therapist, but it really doesn't affect anything else in your life. Like there are people who think that being quote unquote brutally honest is characteristic of a healthy relationship, but you're speaking to needing to feel safe, you know, first, or I've heard the expression in disaster work, people have to know that you care before they care what you know. Mm -hmm. And in terms of emotional states, you know, everyone is familiar with positive and negative emotion, but researchers, and this is kind of, it makes sense intuitively, but there's a third emotion, which is social safeness. And mm -hmm. if you don't feel socially safe, then any readiness for change is going to be contextualized very differently. Yeah. Now, that might be different, though, than if, say, you're doing a computer-based assessment where there's not another person on the other side or even doing uh, some kind of you know, AI-based therapy where you're not so self-conscious about what the other person thinks about you. There's some evidence that that kind of frees things up. Or if you're in a cognitive behavioral therapy model where the therapist positions themselves much more as a kind of a nuts-and-bolts consultant though the relationship is still important, it's decentered. Yeah, and I think sometimes sense. therapists can worry too much about feelings, to, uh, which maybe seems ironic. As far as not wanting to, like wanting to protect the patient, you mean? Right, right. If it might lead to some kind of avoidance of addressing uh, a problem, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, there is definitely a time and a place to bring certain things up. But I also think when you talk about like the CBT model or AI or whatever else it is, I sort of look at it like so many people, we're talking about personalities, we're talking about interpersonal relationships that it seems to me, and I know that uh, you have probably a lot more expertise in the AI area, but being able to play out some of these issues real time, like the rupture and the repair and, and all of that seems like it would be a really important component in, in enacting some sort of change. I, I agree. There's different pathways to change. And, and the direct experience with another human being who is well-equipped to navigate those ruptures and, and those repairs, there's a strong case to be made that that offers something unique. I think generally treatment works well when it's kind of multi multifactorial. Yeah. You know, you, you try different things together because uh, right. we don't really have one way of planning treatment that we know will work for a given person. No, but I'm actually curious. I've never asked you this, but in your, you know, when you work with people, do you set like goals and kind of revisit them over the course of treatment? It's a possibility. It's something that I want to have available. I do often talk about personality in structured ways, not necessarily using a diagnostic approach, but something more like we talked about today, like this is how psychologists talk about personality. Yeah. And one of the new things I did find while looking through the research for this article I'm writing is about changing personality traits, which really was fascinating to me. First of all, let's see, who, who, who are these researchers? If anyone wants to look it up, the research group is called, it's Hudson and Roberts. And first of all, they asked people, they kind of said, here are the five personality traits. Do you want to change any of them? And at least 87% of people said they wanted to change at least one of the traits. Mm -hmm. So the low end was extroversion. 87% of people said they wanted to be more extroverted. And 97% of people said they wanted to be more conscientious. And then they did a couple of studies, and they've done a bunch of them, to show, well, if you try to change your personality, will it change? And the answer was, was yes. They designed a 16-week intervention where they asked people to rate their personalities based on these traits, define what their change goals were, and then define specific behaviors. And they checked in every couple of weeks, saw how they progressed on those specific behaviors, and found that 
their personalities, at least over that course of four months, did change on those dimensions, right? And some personality traits change over the course of life anyway. Like people yeah. tend to get more emotionally stable and they tend to get a bit more agreeable and extroverted. People don't tend to become more open or more conscientious, right. I, I think. Right. And okay. some well, of that... it is genetic. About half of it is genetic in twin studies. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting. Right. And um, I know we're sort of wrapping up now, but uh, I think what surprised me about what you said is the 16-week intervention, because I think a lot of times in therapy, we allow that process to take years and years. Um, and that you know, maybe as that research comes down the pipeline and people will come to therapy, you know, wanting to change something, uh, the interventions or the treatment plan can look a little bit different. Uh, so I like how that research might sort of inform some of our treatment. Yeah, it's, it's complicated because obviously it's very effortful. You know, you really, mm -hmm. in some sense, you have to be conscientious enough to do that, but it yeah. involves deliberate practice and identifying not just goals, but behaviors and the steps that you need to take and then practicing them. So it's very effortful, Okay, but it's often not part of therapists' approach, uh, at yeah. least psychodynamic therapists, where it's more organic and open-ended. Well, thanks. I hope uh, this was helpful. And if you guys have any more questions about personality, uh, you can feel free to reach out. Either send us a message, hello at doorknobcomments.com, or you can follow us on Instagram. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please uh, feel free to rate and review. We would love it. Thanks very much. Right. Happy New Year, depending Bye. when you're listening to this. And I hope your year is going well if you're listening to it after the New Year. <laughs> okay. One disclaimer, this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of psychiatry or any type of medicine. It's not a substitute for professional and individual treatment services, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you feel that you may be in crisis, please don't delay in securing mental health treatment.